If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Colossians. Uh, lots of people have asked us how my family is doing getting, getting settled in, and we are uh, gratefully doing well. Bree and I were, were talking just the other night about um, the, the past few weeks have gone by quickly, and we were, you know, this is not our first move. We have moved before, and, and we were s- sort of surprised at how uh, long it has taken us to sort of get comfortable in our house and get things set up, and we, we really thought it was going quicker than, uh, that it would go quicker than it has, so, uh, but we are starting to get settled and, and have our house sort of put together enough to have company over, and we were um, really fortunate to be able to have my, my mom and dad over last night, and uh, it was a wonderful thing, you know, as you get older, you begin to appreciate you know, your parents more, you get to appreciate the decades that has gone into them perfecting blueberry pie. Uh, that was really the, uh, the key. My, my mom makes a wonderful blueberry pie, and so um, it was great that mom and dad came over, but had they simply dropped off the pie, it would have been awesome as well. Uh, it, was really, it was really wonderful. So um, and that reminded me, eating that last night, that I had promised you that uh, today would be the dessert from the, the meat last week. And that meat was not probably ribeye. It was probably a greasy spoon, $2 overcooked steak. Um, but nevertheless, hopefully, uh, we will get more in the way of dessert today. As we look back to Colossians, specifically, we're going to look at um, the last two verses uh, that we have not got to, verses 18, or last three, excuse me, 18, 19, and 20 of this poem. Before we get there, though, I wanted to kind of go back and, and say a couple of things that I didn't say. Uh, this is simply by way of a, appreciation of what Paul has written here and to look at it in light of a different passage. And, and all I would ask of you is that if you get a chance to this week, go and in light of what we talked about last week and this week, compare these two passages. We have Remember, Paul starting out talking about how Christ is the image of God and that he is the firstborn of all creation. We talked that, that the image of God really is, is something that makes him God. It is that he carries all of the full attributes of what God is. Whatever God is, Jesus, or the Son in that case, rightfully is. And we also talked about how being firstborn makes him a different person from God the Father and from God the Holy Spirit. So he is both fully God, and he is yet a separate and distinct person from God, or within God, I should say. It's interesting that if you go back to the book of John, specifically John 1, you see a great deal of similarity between how Paul is speaking and how John speaks. So in John 1, we read these words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And notice the same sort of distinction that Paul has made when he talks about the image of God, meaning that the Son is fully and totally and completely God, and yet at the same time, a separate person within the Godhead. John does the exact same thing. He says the word was with God. What does it mean to be with somebody? You can be with them locally. I am with you all now. Um, We are present together in the same place. But I can also be with somebody in spirit. Paul talks like this. My wife and I are bonded as one. We are with one another. So, but he is clearly, regardless of how you want to view it, with God, meaning that he is relating to God somehow. Remember, we talked about how personhood means that you relate to one another, and the word relates to God. He was with God. And yet, John doesn't stop there, and he says the word was God. He is the full All of the attributes of God are found in this word, just as Paul is saying 
John speaks. And then he goes on to say this, all things were made through him and without him, not anything was made that was made. Just as Paul goes on to speak of how Christ was the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. And then he talks immediately about creation, okay? He will eventually, John will eventually talk about the indwelling of the word. He came and lived among us. And that is something that we will now look at in the book of Colossians. So if you have time this week, go and compare these two passages and see how closely tied together they are. But let us go back to the book of Colossians and read beginning in verse 15 through verse 20. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. May God bless this reading of his word. Our English translations sometimes do a bad job with things like poetry. Now, if you open up to the Psalms, they do a wonderful job with it. They've got it stanzaed and all that good stuff, and that's really nice. But here, at least in the ESV and in many other versions, this is reported just as a block of text. And as I said before, it is likely a poem and it is likely a hymn. So because it's a poem, it is not just the words themselves that make us think deeply. It is oftentimes the structure of how those poems are put together. It is the manner in which they are placed together that helps. And so on the back of your sermon handout, I have rewritten the poem. And I have separated it out. You'll see that there are no verse markings there or anything like that. But I have separated it out to try and help us to see how the poem is supposed to function, how the hymn is supposed to function. Now, this is not gospel. It is simply my opinion. If you talk to scholars, they will have 12 or 14 to 29 to 38 different ways of putting this all together. I think that this makes sense, and I think that this is probably the best way to put it together. So what you get is you get, notice the similarities in the first, what I will call stanza, and the second or the last stanza. You have a who is, and there is a who is in the second stanza. It speaks of being firstborn, it speaks of being firstborn, and there is an explanation for in him and for in him. What we have then in the middle is a bridge. It is a way to connect those two stanza. It is verses 17 and then the beginning of verse 18. It is in that transition that we want to start this morning because it is the shift that we want to see. It says in verse 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I think that that verse is simply meant to summarize the entire first stanza. All that it was meant to say is summarized in that, that he is before all things. That means that he is preeminent above all things. That he is before all things means that he is creator. He was the one who has created all of the work of the world. He is the one who has created all of the 
things of the world, whether it is grass or buildings or concrete or cement, whether it is thrones or dominions or power, all of these things have been created by Christ for Christ. This means that he has all the rights of a creator. As we've talked about last week, as Job learns that God gets to do what he wants to with his people. They are his creation. He is the potter. They are the clay. He has the right to form them, to change them, to use them for what he wants. And therefore, Christ is that same God. He has the right to do what he would like. Isaiah, again, overall affirms the same thing. But Christ is not just the creator. It says, in him all things hold together. He sustains all things through the power of his word. I love science. I think science is brilliant. Um, I find it terribly interesting. In the beginning of the 20th century, science was really, really close to thinking that they had kind of everything down. They, they wouldn't necessarily have spoken that way, but they were close to unifying all of the theories. They knew that electromagnetism, they knew several other forces and how they related to one another. But then as the 20th century began, all that began to fall apart. And science today, especially in physics, is well aware of how far away they are from understanding almost anything. On the macro scale, they don't have any way to account for about 90% of the forces in the world. Not just the forces that you and I know of, but forces that propel galaxies apart. They don't understand why this is happening. They don't know where the vast majority, 90% of the mass and matter of the world is. They just don't know where that stuff is. They call it dark matter. It should be there. It has to be there to keep the galaxies together, but they don't know how to find it. They don't know what it looks like. They don't know if it's actual matter, if it's just sort of gravity. That's just, they've got no idea what's going on. On the micro scale, we used to think that things just don't pop into existence, but now we know that things do kind of just pop into existence. Even if it's just for fractions of a fraction of a fraction of a second, it, it just randomly happens, and then it randomly disappears. We know so much less about the world now than we thought we did. The question becomes, how do we know anything about the world? How does the world stay stable? We have particles coming and going. We've got black holes that suck things into nothingness. How do we know that the world is stable? How do we know that things will continue on the way it goes? Truth is, science doesn't have a good answer for that, but we do. Christ is the sustainer of the cosmos. He not only holds the galaxies in his hands, he holds every particle and atom and molecule in his hands. He keeps it in place. Without him, without him sustaining it by the power of his word, it fizzles, it dies, it dissipates, it goes away. It is blown into nothingness. Paul then turns, and this is the, the shift. He's talking about Christ preeminently over everything, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, preeminently over everything. And then he changes. He shifts, not even subtly. It's a tremendous shift to say, and he is the head of the body, the church. If the way we have set up the poem here is the way it is meant to be read, I believe that that beginning of verse 18 is meant to summarize everything that will come below it. And I think that it's also meant to be in parallel to what we just read. So if Christ is before all things and he is the sustainer of all things, being the head of the church means the same and implies the same kind of idea. 
that Christ is the source of the church. He is the beginning and the creator of the church. He is the one who is in authority over the church. He is preeminently above the church. He is the glory of the church. He is more than that, the very thing that holds the church together. If he does not hold the universe together, it becomes unraveled. If he does not hold the church together, she becomes unraveled and dissipates and disappears into nothingness. We can have all kinds of good things within our ministries. We can have all kinds of good things to say, but there is nothing that will replace having Jesus Christ as the center and the cornerstone of everything that we believe in. It is the only thing, he is the only thing that will unite us and keep us together and keep us as a church. We can be united and we can promote a right to life and we can say that abortion is not an okay way to live. It is not an okay thing to appropriate. It is not an okay thing for a country to stand up and say is okay under any circumstance. But if that is what we begin to make our identity by, then we will stop being the church. We can talk all we want to about justice, and we should. But if that becomes the center of everything we are, we lose Jesus, and therefore we stop being the church the same goes for compassion, for morality in public, for any of a number of things you want to list. All of those things might be good and true, and we ought to fight for those things, but those things do not unify us. Those things do not hold us. There is one thing that holds us and sustains us, and that is the head of the church that makes the church work in unison, just like your brain controls where your hands go and where your feet go. Without a functioning brain, you turn into chaos. And without Christ controlling us, we are nothing but unraveling chaos. He is the head of the church. That, by the way, is not the first point, so don't jump ahead of me. Some of you filled it in. You're, you've got to slow down. Just, this is, it's a slow-baking dessert. Just wait for it, please. That is the theme of the verses that come down. And so what we want to do is look at these ingredients. I'm going to stay with my little metaphor here, which might not be a good one, but we're, we've purchased it, so we're going to stay with it. And we're going to look at three different ingredients that we find in here for what Christ is before we become sort of consumers of the dessert. The first thing we want to talk about then is that Christ is the source of the church. And our translation that I've provided. It says, who is the beginning? He is the foundation. He is the source of everything. There's a number of ways that you could translate that. It's, it's you know, source. It is beginning. It is, uh, you, you could have the, the instigating principle. You can think of it as though he is the kid who topples over all the dominoes. He is the one who starts everything. He is the beginning and the source of everything in the church. And specifically, that is detailed in the fact that he is firstborn from the dead. What does it mean to be firstborn from the dead? Well, clearly it's an indication that he was resurrected from the grave. Now, there's a good question as to why at this point the resurrection becomes important. And it does become important. To understand what's going on here, we need to understand that Paul has already placed in cosmic terms the work that Christ has done. And so if we are going to understand what the church is meant to be, we need to understand it in terms of cosmic significance. 
He is not just firstborn from the dead, and that sort of makes us understand that his forgiveness was true and real. It is not a way to say that Jesus actually was who he claimed to be, not here, but it's more important than that. If you go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have talked about the way I typically think of organizing those chapters. And what has happened in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is God has created all of creation. He has specifically created man and woman and all of creation. And there is a pecking order in that. There is an order by which he has made these things. God was high above all else and man was below him. Woman then, and then underneath them, was creation. And what happens in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 3 is an inversion of that right order of things. As a snake, a creature approaches Eve and tricks Eve into disobeying her husband and God. And then she gives to her husband, who does not lead in that situation, but follows and takes of the apple and then denying God goes and hides. It is an inversion. It takes God out of his rightful place and makes him subservient to everything and puts creation in a place that it does not deserve. It is sin that reigns over all of it. What keeps the world inverted? What keeps our world inverted? Why do people still have idolatry? Why does sin still reign and death reign with it? It's because sin keeps it inverted. And so if Christ is going to rectify that situation, if he is going to make things right, he has to re-invert it. But in order to do that, he has to overcome the power that sin has on the world. And the power that sin has is found in one thing. It is the trump card that sin plays always and forevermore. And it is the only card it has. And it's played it well for 2,000 years, for 3,000 years, for as long as human beings have walked the earth. And that is the card of death. That is its only card. If Christ is going to remake the world, if Christ is going to rewrite the world, if Christ is going to make the world right again, he must overcome death. Peter says says it well in Acts 2 when he talks about during Pentecost, he says, God raised him from the dead. He loosed the bonds of death because Christ could not be held by them. It is his resurrection from the dead that overcomes sin, that overcomes death, that overcomes that inversion of creation. The fact that he is both the beginning and the firstborn implies that there are many more to follow. He wasn't the end of the resurrection, but he is the beginning of it. He has created the church from this. You too were once, as Paul will go on to say, alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, but God bore you again. He has made you and renewed you again. Christ is the source of the church. Second, Christ is the incarnation of the Son. Christ is the incarnation of the Son. We talked last time about Trinity, and we talked about how the Trinity is the fact that God is one, He is always one, but that He exists in three persons. We use the word of nature, to describe the essence or the perfection of God in and of himself. He has one nature, but yet we talked in terms of persons to describe how Father, Son, and Spirit relate to one another. And I said that each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the one God. Each one is 
fully the one God, and each one is not the other. So they are fully the one God, but they are distinct persons. And yet, at the same time, I said that this hymn was not really about the Trinity, but it was about Christology. It is about making much of Christ. So here we begin to. If we talked about how the Trinity is one nature, three persons, Christ is almost the inversion of that. Christ is now two natures, one person. As the Son indwells, and takes on a human nature, he takes on what the church fathers would say, that which he was not before. He was not human, but he takes on human flesh. We would have to affirm that this in no way diminishes his divinity. No part of the fullness of God is taken away from Jesus by the fact that he took on flesh. Yet at the same time, he does take on a nature that is distinct from that which he had before. He takes on the weakness of you and I. He takes on our affirmities. He takes on temptation. He takes on the frailty of the flesh. He can now not only get sick, but he can die. He gets hungry. He gets thirsty. He can be tempted in all ways as you and I are. Only he is found without sin. So Paul says, in him the fullness, the totality of God, everything that God is, was pleased to dwell in a man. How do we know that he means in a man? Why not talk about this in terms of the son who we said was really the key to 15 and 16? Why can we not read this in terms of that? Because the very next verse says, to reconcile to himself all things, making peace through the blood of his cross. That is God does not bleed. Men bleed. The fullness of God was pleased to incarnate Jesus Christ, to be made into flesh and to live a life of flesh. It pleased him. It wasn't done by compulsion. This wasn't duty. This wasn't, my father wants me to save these wretched people, so I will go. But no, I don't want to. But it was his good pleasure to come and to save you. Even more important for the Christology is what it says in the very next verse. After he says, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to him. Now that sounds confusing, but let's be slow through this. Who needed to be reconciled in everything? Well, man needs to be reconciled. Creation needs to be reconciled. As you read through here, you can read that all things are reconciled. But specifically, they all needed to be reconciled in light of God. God is the immovable and never-changing thing. God is the one who has no variation or turning. So it is to be re-reconciled to God. What has gone wrong is creation. What's gone wrong is mankind. What needs to be made right is them, not God. They need to be reconciled to God. So when it says, through him to reconcile all things to him, it means that it was reconciled to God. But who is the him? The first him, that is. And through him, that is, through the man, Jesus Christ. So you have, in this one sentence, both natures of God. That Christ, through his humanity, is reconciling the world to God, the divine one. And yet, at the same time, you see no distinction in person. 
It is all one person. That him refers to the same person. There is no Jesus praying to his divine self and the divine self speaking over the human self. We talked about how in the Trinity, one of the reasons why we know that they are persons is because they relate to one another. Jesus prays to the Father. He thanks the Father. He talks to the Father. He quotes scripture to the Father. The Father speaks blessings over the Son. He gives instructions to the disciples about his Son. You get none of that with Jesus. Jesus only refers ever to himself as one person. Through that one person, through his blood on the cross, he reconciles the world to himself. Christ is the incarnation of the Son. Thirdly, Christ is the reconciliation of all things. He is the reconciliation of all things. Normally when we read the word reconciliation, we think of happy and good times. And for good reasons. Reconciliation means that things that have gone askew, things that have gone sideways are made right again. We have reconciled two believers together. They have been fighting. They have been at odds with one another. And somebody steps in and they say, listen, guys, we need to get along in the Lord. We have something like this in Philippians 2. And Paul says, hey, let this mind be among you, which was in Christ Jesus, who considered others better than himself. And so he laid down his life. And so we can reconcile believers. We can put them back in a right relationship with one another. And so typically when we hear this word reconciliation, we are always thinking of good things, pleasant things, happy things. And they are indeed that in a sense but it's that pesky little all things, reconciling all things to him, reconciling things on the earth and in heaven. Everything is reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. This certainly does mean man. This means you and I were reconciled to him. When we have confessed in Jesus Christ and we believe in his work on the cross, that he was raised again on the third day, we are then reconciled to God, having our sin taken on the cross, God pouring out his wrath upon his son instead of upon us so that he can look upon us with favor. He has reconciled us with him. He has given us new life and new spirit so that we are no longer in rebellion against him, but that order is now reverted and we stand under him, knowing him as the one true and living God. Our understanding, our relationship has been reconciled to him. But you and I all know, all know that that is not true for every living person. But at the cross of Jesus Christ and eventually through his work, everyone will be reconciled to him. That does not mean that everyone will know him as savior but some will come to know the correct order of things. Us, prayerfully, through glory, through mercy, and through grace. Others and their obstinance, through punishment, through hell, and through damnation. But they will know, because of what Jesus has done, because of the judgment with which he comes to judge the living and the dead, they will know the one true God that stands above all all things. Every man will be reconciled. But not just every man will be reconciled. Everything will be reconciled. This is universal. It is cosmic in scope. 
So it's not just that we are reconciled, but nature and creation are reconciled to God. All of those natural disasters, all of the difficulty is undone. As Paul says in Romans 8, 19, and 20, that creation is groaning and longing for the revealing of the sons of God, that it was subject to futility. You can make a lot out of those verses, but let me give you a way to understand those. If you have ever been around people who have been placed in authority, who have no right being there, who have been given tasks that are above them, and every day you can see them drowning just a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. They know that they are not cut out and they are not fit for what has been given to them, and they are struggling with it, and they might be the most humble person in the world, but they know that they've got a job to do and they are just not capable of doing it. That is futility. Why does creation await the redemption of mankind and the provision of the sons of God? Because in the inversion, creation was given a task that it cannot possibly fulfill. It was given the job of being God. It can't do it. And it wastes away. But when God makes all things right again, when God makes all things new again, when he reinverts creation to be what it always was meant to be, the burden that has been placed on creation is now taken away from it. It no longer has to function as God to you and me, but instead it can function under us as it was always meant to be. And so it longs and it awaits for the provision of adoption to the sons of God. Christ's blood reconciles everything. It makes it right again. All sin and all effects of sin are undone. So we have the three ingredients, that Christ is the source of the church. He is the beginning of the church, that he is the incarnation of the Son, and that he is the reconciliation of all things. When you put these together and you read of it in terms of verses 15 and 16, this is the dessert. This is what all of it was meant for. And that is this, that as Christ was creator of the heavens and the earth, as much as, as he has shown powerful and glorious through creating everything, so much more is he shown glorious and powerful in creating a new creation that is the church. Christ, the church, excuse me, is the new creation of Christ. Christ, who was the firstborn of all creation, is the firstborn of the dead. He is the head of all creation, for he was the one who created all things, and he is the head of the church. Christ is the beginning and the end of everything, so in all things, he might have first place. He might be preeminent above everything. And there are plenty of us and there are plenty of people who disparage the church. And rightfully so. It's filled with sinners. I, I see you all over the place, right? You people are there. We're, we're filled with sinners. We will never be perfect. None of us. We have frailty in flesh. We have poor judgment. We will make mistakes, we will be hypocritical, and the world will quickly point that out. People in the church are quick to point that out. The failings and the shortcoming of church everywhere, Southern Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, it stops nowhere. Every single church is fallible and fallen, and we can point it out, and we can lament how the church is fallible and fallen. Fair enough. But I will tell you this. 
if somehow God were to allow you in the spirit to go back to the very creation and he were to allow you somehow outside of time and space to watch creation, if you were to hear his voice say, let there be and there was. And you would see that that speck of light grow You would watch electrons and protons spin into existence. You would watch galaxies form and stars become. You would watch all of creation in all of its glory and its magnificence and its awesomeness. You have seen nothing less than that in the creation of the church. It is the new creation. It is everything, everything that creation was only now forevermore unperverted. We have not in our fullness reached that, but we in his fullness are that. The church is nothing less than the new creation. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are a new creation because God, the same God who spoke in the very beginning has spoken to us because God, the same God who created in the beginning has created his church. In 517, 2 Corinthians 517, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. There is a new creation. You are not what you were. You are not what you will be, but you are a new creation. This is what is going to drive the Colossians in their devotion to Christ. It is not just that Christ is glorious and magnificent and worthy of their praise and adoration. We could have picked that up from the Old Testament. We could have gone to the Old Testament and God could have shown himself to be glorious and high and mighty and strong and the people could have quivered at the foot of the mountain and said, we will do everything we can do. And yet 30 days later have grumbled in the desert because they had too much quail or because they didn't have enough quail, or because they didn't have water, or because they wanted to go back to Egypt. We are frail and fickle creatures. It wasn't that the Colossians will be sustained by Christ simply because he is magnificent. They are sustained by Christ because he is magnificent, and they are not what they were. They are a new creation. Let us understand ourselves that way. Paul will go on to say this in chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul says very clearly, you're not there yet. When he appears, you will understand what it's like. But in the meantime, church, you strive to be that. You are a new creation, Paul says. Now live like it. Let's pray. Father God, your plan is unscrutable. You are amazing in what you have done. 
our Lord Jesus Christ. Your obedience and sacrifice is a sign and show not only of your love of God, but of your love of us. Spirit, we are thankful that you have come to give us new life, that you lead us in all truth. God, we praise you for who you are and for what you have done here. We thank you for the church. We thank you for brothers and sisters who have been renewed and been made new again. We ask, Father, that you will bless us in all things. For the good of your church, for the greatness of your name, for the praise of your glorious grace. Amen.